In this episode of the Smart City Podcast, I have a great conversation with Danielle Story. This is the second time, no, third time Danny's been on the podcast. This time we talk about smart city governance and the importance of frameworks uh, in this space. This was supposed to be just a short bonus episode, um, but I think it's going to be a long bonus episode. Anyway, I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. It's the Smart City Podcast, whoa, with smart city experts, here we go. Connecting smart technology, both big and small. Smart cities are making life better for all. Big data, emerging trends, self-driving cars and more. The Smart City Podcast is what you're looking for. Hello, Danny. Welcome back to the Smart City Podcast. Thanks, Zoe, and uh, all the listeners, and uh, it's good to be back. Excellent. So just um, for people that haven't heard your previous episode, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're passionate about? Sure. I'm I'm Danielle Story, the Chief Innovation Officer of Smarter Technology Solutions. Uh, we're essentially a specialist smart city consulting and system integration company, working with uh, some of the leading smart cities in Australia and um, helping them build out their vision and their strategy and also then uh, our engineering teams get on the tools and actually build and ha- help that vision come to life. So it's pretty exciting uh, what we get into and um, it's been great to see so many different uh, councils over the last three or four years. So um, I- I'm very excited about what the next few years bring. Yeah, awesome. So last time you came on the podcast, I had the the previous set of questions. So what we're going to do, we'll just jump through a couple of these first and then we really want to talk about governance. Um, Danny and I have been speaking uh, for a while now just about different aspects of smart cities and, and how governance is so important. So let's start with what is a smart city to you? Um, I think a smart city to me, uh, and this may vary from my previous answer, so it will be interesting to see, but I think really it's about aspiring to do things better and whether better is more sustainably, um, to better support the local economy or whether that's you know about you know, services and uh, the communities we live in. But I think overall, um, the sort of blanket answer I often give is it's using data and technology to be more efficient and effective in how we run it to, uh, cities and how we deliver services to the community. Um, but obviously, that does vary very widely from uh, from other different people's perspectives. But um, yeah, it's, it's really about just aspiring to be better, I think. Yeah, definitely. And why do you think that this concept is so important? Um, I think, well, there's a few things. I think I heard a quote from a, a council in the Northern Territory in the last few months, and it's really stuck with me. Uh, and the gist of it is that the places where we live are important. And I think that sums it up really well. So obviously, we all live in, in cities and towns and communities, uh, and we all understand the sense of why uh, having close-knit communities with strong economies and uh, you know living sustainably is really important. And you know, if you ask anyone who's deciding where to live, they'll be talking about things like the livability aspects. So it's pretty clear uh, to me why um, the whole smart city concept's important. And, uh, you know, fundamentally, it's because that's where we live and it's where we spend our time and it's where we re- people raise their families and things like that. So, yeah, in a nutshell, I think, the, you know, the answer is because where we live is important. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So you've been working across Australia for the last, you know, couple of years. So how do you think Australia is embracing the smart city concept, and I'm interested to hear whether you think it's um, uh, gaining momentum or, you know, it's stable now or, you know, people, it's more mature or 
um, it really depends on which area you're in. So that was about three questions. So yes, Australia-wide, I think it does vary a lot. And you were, you were asking those questions and you mentioned the word maturity. And I do think that in the last year, I've certainly noticed, and I think our whole team would, would know, have noticed that there does seem to be a maturing mindset in terms of what smart cities is, what's possible. It's a bit less blurry, I think. Um, although, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done. I think globally, we do really well in some aspects. Um, obviously, given the, you know, the drought and the, the topical nature that is water in Australia, I think that's an area where we could probably do better. Uh, and there's some real synergies with uh, Water Start, I think it's called in Nevada, where, which is uh, obviously in the US, in the desert, similar challenges. So um, I do see opportunities for global collaboration where some of these uh, use cases, some of these particular problems are so challenging. Um, so that's one is I think we could probably do better uh, at collaborating with regions with similar problems. I also think that globally, we, we, you know, I, I have listened to some of the podcasts uh, historically uh, on your show and I probably don't feel as that we're so far behind. Um, certainly, some of the the global case studies do a great job of marketing, but you know, boots on the ground, what's what they're delivering is not overly dissimilar to what we're delivering here. But perhaps they do it in a more mature way in terms of all the governance, the structure, and the direction and the leadership because they've been doing it that bit longer. Uh, and just before the call, Zoe and I were talking about some councils that have gone out and, and done all the technology testing and are now working out okay from what we've learnt. How do we now integrate all that into our business process and systems and whatever? And, you know, initially when you think about that approach, that seems a bit silly that you go and do things and then figure out how it all fits in. But sometimes that's actually the quickest way of working out what's needed because, it, you know, some of the, the holes and some of the gaps are so blatantly obvious, which sitting in an office with a pen and paper, it's difficult to forecast. So I think there's merit in different approaches. And, um, you know, to sum your question up, I think, yes, things are maturing. I don't think we're ridiculously behind globally, but I think we could certainly do better. And I would like to see some more global collaboration on some key issues where we know we've got synergies with other regions. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think um, that's became quite apparent when, well, when I started talking to people, particularly other people that are working in Australia, but then when we... Um, went on the Future Leaders, Future Cities delegation to Japan. Um, not to say Japan is behind by any means, but I just felt like Australia definitely is up there um, in that conversation. And, you know, there's peaks and troughs with every um, country, every region, every um, even every city. I think where we're really ahead is, uh, but but again, continue to improve, is we have really strong kind of standards when it comes to environment. Like we know how important the environment is. Whether we um, act on that or not um, always is is um, questionable. But I think we have the the mechanism there that we can that we can really thrive, you know, to embrace the environmental aspects as well as, you know, the safety aspects and, and you know, quality aspects as well. So I think we're doing really well in that area um, as long as we continue to follow those where, where appropriate. But also I think when we uh, follow those to a T when it doesn't make sense, that, that causes issues as well. So that ability to fail is not really there. Um, and so talking about that um, council we were speaking of earlier, you know, they went out there and some things worked and some things didn't work, but that was okay. Um, so then they could learn from that and then how that would uh, vary the way that they embed 
the smart city um, offices or um, champions or whatever you want to call them into their uh, business. It wasn't just, oh, well, this is how we're going to do it. And it's not, it wasn't a linear approach. It was very circular, you know, looking from the outside in. So I think that's, that's one thing. And I think what I found was we adopt technology, like boring technology or what we consider boring quite easily and without any, you know, too much kicking and screaming. Like I just think of payment technology, you know, PayWave and those type of things. Um, when we went to Japan, it was like cash-based, which I, I've used that as an example a couple of times. But I think it is relevant because, you know, even online banking and those type of things, like we've had that for years and years, not to say that Japan doesn't, I'm not sure, but just some of those really simple, integrated, boring technologies that people see real value in, and efficiency in, then we just we just do it. We just go out and do it on a mass scale. But I think the important thing is that we have choice. You know, some people still want to go into the bank, so they are able to do that. And I think that's what a smart city really is, is actually not just putting technology um, everywhere and everyone must use this, um, but actually laying it out and then people have choice. And it's about education, I think, because and even in the smart city space, I think about the smart citizen. If people don't know that they're smart citizens, then you know we've got a problem. So I think that education piece and that really comes with maturity because you can't educate people if you don't know what it is yourself, or you know accepting that you don't know everything, but actually starting to educate people about what it is we are trying to do, being really open, honest, and transparent about that. Absolutely. I think that that's the human aspect of a smart city, right? Is, um, you know, all this technology and all this data is great, but fundamentally part of, uh, where we live and who we are as people is having that choice. And, um, yeah, I think you summed it up really well there. Cool. Thanks. I think I got a bit ranty there for a second. <laughs> um, but I think it kind of leads into the governance discussion that we were, you know, we were, were hoping to have. I think, I'm really keen to hear your thoughts, so I'm going to shut up. And what do you think is so important about smart city governance? Well, the thing that Zoe and I were talking about before the call is what is governance? And I guess depending on the person you're talking to, that might mean policy and procedure and auditing. To someone else, that might mean, you know, vision and leadership and a documented strategy. For others, that might be, you know, technical architecture frameworks and making sure that when we build all these things that they do fit together nicely and that they do all talk and we can share data between organizations. And I think most of the governance discussion depends on the lens on which you're looking through. Um, so th there's a couple of elements that I think we can loosely group together. And I think that is what I would term things like leadership and vision. And that's where are we going? You know, what are we aspiring to be? How will we know when we get there? It's a fairly straightforward thing, and it's the bulk of what, what the consulting work we've been doing has been, is helping councils that haven't yet embarked on smart cities to realize, okay, well, what are we trying to achieve? Um, what will success look like? Why are we doing it? What are the outcomes? What are the problems we're solving? And then wrapping that up into a, you know, a, a nice, I guess, pretty document that, that can go out to um, the public to say, look, this is what we're trying to achieve, and we actually want your opinion. Because, again, the governance piece is not just internal council-led, but also should be in strong consultation with both those internal stakeholders and uh, the external public. But I have found, and I, and I will sort of state for, for those listening who are kind of embarking on this step, is sometimes people don't know what they want because they don't understand the context of the question. So if they don't know what Smart Cities is and what it's capable of, then their suggestions are not going to be coming from a place that understands what's possible. So 
it's kind of that parallel education and and uh, consultation piece. So I don't know anyone who's nailed that yet either. So please, I don't profess to have all the answers. But some of the structured workshops and, and education pieces we've done, uh, followed by you know ideation sessions that are a bit more interactive, I think usually get there. But you, you know the the biggest challenge is having to realise that that you know people who don't live and breathe this whole smart cities ecosystem every day don't understand that you know there's data available that can solve some of the transport issues or that there's bin fill level monitoring that can optimize how we collect our waste bins or you know lighting that can optimize safety and energy consumption and those sorts of things and i guess it comes back to the question is what lens are we looking through here like what are we trying to achieve because in isolation they're just technology and that's lovely um you know we all know i like technology but if it's not delivering an outcome addressing a need, my point there is usually that it should be at the bottom of the pile. And most cities have got two or three key issues, you know, be it parking or traffic or crime or whatever, that they need to address in order to make their cities more livable. And, you know, I think that that undertone needs to be captured as well as the community sentiment before putting the smart city spin on it. So in summary, that, that um, the strategy and the vision and the leadership you know, needs to be around the challenges and problems or what we're aspiring to be. So then then the next level of detail can be added. But um, I think it's important to be clear on what, what the problems are, what you're trying to achieve before you go too far because it's really easy to get bogged down in the detail of what sort of street lights do we want when the problem is, you know, community safety and we want to be able to turn the lights up when the bars are closing and people are spilling into the streets or whatever. So... So I think, yeah, the leadership, the vision, um, you know, having a clear direction strategy that's co-created and consultated internally and externally because I think that is, you know, it's a critical element. You don't want some consultants sitting in a room by themselves coming up with ideas. That's not how good vision happens. So in a nutshell, I think there's some some key points there around, you know, leadership and, and vision around the governance. Often that activity spills out into, okay, we've got some gaps around policy and um, procurement's been very topical in the last few weeks in an industry. I know ASCO have been running webinars on it. I know the public-private partnership models being thrown around a lot. Um, but in reality, I think uh, once you've got a nice clear vision, we need to look at, okay, well, for where we are now, you know, what's some of the major gaps and barriers to getting there? And often the procurement policy is a 12-month process or the um, the way that budgeting happens, you kind of get it allocated or you don't. And there's a whole range of things you could look at. Um, so I think that gap analysis and review of given the strategy, what's missing in our business process within council to make it happen, and then externally, what structures or mechanisms or stakeholder engagement pieces are missing in order to make it happen. Yeah, I agree. I was just going to add that I think um, definitely leadership and vision, and I think um, maybe it's it's one and the same, but appetite. I found I found like having conversations with councils that have the appetite for the smart city or whatever they're calling it, what it doesn't matter. All those other things are just seem to me now excuses. Um, when they have that appetite to change, then magic, you know, happens, you know, with budget and policy and all those type of things. But it comes down to strong leadership. And if you don't have that and, and not strong as in even good management or, or whatever. It's, it's, it's more about that vision. Um, that, uh, like exactly what you're saying, vision and leadership. And I think within that, you can't just have a strong leader. You actually need people. And I guess a strong leader can create this, but having people empowered who are working underneath them that 
are empowered to make decisions um, in and, and if we're all work, working towards the same direction, then we can kind of collaborate together towards that common goal. But if you and, – and we don't have to, you know, this manager has to report to this manager to have to report to this manager to have to report to this manager because the the further away you get from the, the original idea – so if the original idea is, is level one, if you have to go up to a level, you know, six to get approved, then people become less and less interested um, because they're further and further away from the actual, you know, the inception of the idea. So then you've got less and less interest, so then it becomes this non-prioritized thing. Whereas if a person down the bottom who's had the idea then can enact the idea, then you've got so much more, um, like, uh, push behind it because it was their idea and they want to see it succeed. And obviously you need some other governance around that to make sure that it's not just any old idea. Um, but I think that having people empowered and inspired that they can actually make real change is really important because otherwise people are just going to go in day to day and do their day to day thing, get their paycheck and go home. Um, so yeah, I think that's important as well. Oh, absolutely. And, and often, um, that first process I spoke of around leadership and vision that, you know, that is getting an idea on paper, probably the, the one of the largest uh, challenges, particularly if it's not, a, a, you know, a grant that's been awarded or budget that's already been allocated because people have managed to see the vision. But to then go and get financial support, resourcing, or, you know, even just approval within an organization becomes really challenging. So I certainly agree with everything you just said there, Zoe. Um, you know, you do need a critical mass of, you know, interested parties. And I've heard a few different terms, you know, used in different councils to explain that. But it's kind of that snowball effect is, you know, the more people you get behind an idea, the more momentum you seem to get. And that doesn't mean that that's good momentum either. I mean, uh, with a clear vision and strategy, if we're all going the same direction, it definitely is uh, really helpful. But without it, it's kind of like a net full of fish swimming in different directions. <laughs> and, you know, the net effect is that nothing moves. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree there. So there are some other frameworks that often fall out of that, you know, usually in that gap analysis um, stage where – we might identify some structures or groups or steering committees or, you know, ways of engaging people at all levels. Um, I've even seen um, some councils running lunchbox sessions where they're talking to staff about what smart cities is and what they're doing and then seeking their engagement. And I think that's been quite successful. But it's a relatively informal process. But people are engaged. People can participate. People can uh, be informed and interested. And I think – and I had another councillor actually tell me this, but – when you look at um, smart cities, if you talk about smart cities and technology, it's no surprise that you might lose 50% of the audience in the opening lines. But if you ask people if they want to make their cities safer, create more local jobs, or fix the traffic problems, you rarely have someone who doesn't want to participate. <laughs> you know, So I think it also depends on how it's framed. So it's just a side note there, but I, I, I definitely agree with you that um, you know, getting critical support at the right levels as well, because there's no point everyone at the operational level knows there's a problem and wants to solve it. You still need management buy-in and senior leadership buy-in and the common direction in order for, you know, effective processes to occur. Yeah, no, um, agree totally. And I think that the other thing that we need to really um, not focus on but be aware of is that when you've got people – empowered within, you also need to have people empowered 
outside the organization as well, um, those external stakeholders, um, because that's how you get, you know, y- your full engagement. And I really like the idea of those lunch, lunchtime se- sessions because that makes a lot of sense because you don't want it to be so formal that, you know, you, again, you lose half your audience and then the half that's there, they feel like, oh, this is just another talk or this is just a, another thing that, you know, nothing will change. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think that's really important. And that when people are able to take their whatever hat off that they have and then just come in as human beings and go, oh, I want to really fix this traffic problem because it causes issues within my community, then like you said, who who wouldn't want to do that um, if they're supported by their work environment? And I think it is about making a safe work environment so then people can, you know, even if they have silly or, you know, silly ideas or what seem to be silly ideas could actually really fundamentally change the way that maybe community engagement's done or, you know, bringing ideas from different levels. And I think um, uh, Andrew Grill, who I interviewed, he's a practical futurist. It was actually really interesting is – that digital diversity. Um, so when you're talking about having those boards, I, I think it's important, but I think what's actually important is not necessarily the board itself, but how the board functions, which is, um, and who's on that board and who can make decisions on that board. Because if again, it's a board full of people that are just at the top, then like they won't necessarily understand the issues that are coming up. It'll only be the really important ones that someone above someone above someone that has, you know, has gone to the board. Um, and also if it's about technology, you need to make sure that people across that board understand what the technology is, what it can and can't do, um, and what problems it can and can't solve as well, which I think is really hard to do if you don't understand the technology yourself. So I think there's a, that digital diversity um, is really important. So having people that maybe they are younger or maybe they're just, you know, tech-minded, you have those people as well as the people that aren't and have that wealth of experience in policy, regulation or whatever it is, you need that across the board because otherwise you're again just going to get decisions made that aren't necessarily the best for um you know the direction that we're trying to move in so yeah and i i think that point's really interesting because it's certainly not for lack of care but if you don't particularly in the technology space i find if you have um primarily non-technical people making decisions things could look beautiful and um you know technology vendors do a great job of demonstrating their product and hiding all the bits that they don't need you to see. Uh, and sometimes it does take that expertise to dig a little bit deeper to realise, you know, what's what's the truth and what's, you know, vaporware is the term that's often used. But, you know, it's it's just having the right people in the room to make educated decisions. And I, I, I think sometimes decisions get made and people say, well, why the hell did that happen, you know? You know, it, it's not for lack of caring. It's just that some of these structures perhaps aren't in that way that they've got the right people in the room. So on that digital diversity, just one other thing I should add is it's really important to have a good mix of the operational levels as you spoke of, but as equals in the room. So, you know, me as a, as an operational level telling the CEO, I think his idea is terrible. Um, you can imagine how that conversation would go if the frameworks around it aren't set to, to allow that conversation to happen and sort of leave the egos at the door, which again comes down to people and culture and a whole bunch of other things that is well off topic. But the other part is good male-female representation and good age diversity because we all see the world very differently and I think that that's the value of those kind of committees. So um, I would also just add on the on the you know steering committee or the working group or whatever you want to call it, not turning to that that into something that we have meetings to discuss when we're setting meetings and using it as something that becomes 
an overhead instead of meeting the purpose of the, the thing, you know, whether it's setting the vision or making decisions or whatever. Um, I think it's important to either break it down into smaller working groups to talk about the details or keep clear focus on what you're trying to achieve and not make it governance heavy that it becomes a burden because it just won't happen. Yeah, and I think um, the other thing with governance and innovation in the topic of innovation is getting away from business as usual to allow people to innovate um, because if innovation is like, a, oh, if you've got time, do some innovation – then it's never going to work. So allowing people to leave business as usual at the door for a certain period of time or, you know, whatever it is, obviously you need to, every business will be different. Um, and then allow people to innovate is really important because otherwise your business as usual takes over and it always will because, you know, it's business as usual and you don't have time unless you create or unless you make time for that. So I think that's Absolutely. important too. And again, that comes down to governance. Um, allowing people to have that time in a in, in you know culture and all that kind of stuff as well but yeah i think long term it saves time too right so um my, my favorite picture oh, that totally. i love bringing up at innovation events is a guy trying to drag things up a hill and another guy saying mate this is there's a better way of doing this and he's holding two wheels and he said no no i'm too busy and it, it it's just yep. exactly how it, I love how that it is one too. and you know i i think that we're always too busy to take a step back and think about if there's better ways of doing things but just taking a step back, you actually do often create uh, sometimes a bit more work in the in the short term to sort of make things more efficient and effective in the long term. And I, I kind of use those words deliberately because, um, you know, I think long term, the most efficient ways of doing things are the ways that people are going to keep going towards. And um, I heard someone the other day say you should always ask the laziest person in the team because they'll find the best way of doing it that, that requires the least effort. And that's kind of stuck with me. But some of those policy reviews might be things like allowing you know someone a day a month in a innovation workshop across the business. And yes, it's difficult to take people out of business as usual, but it's absolutely critical to the success of some of the organisations because the financial models, the you know the resourcing models, they're just not working. Like there's not a council I've been to in the last three years that haven't said that they're understaffed and that they're always under the pump. They can never get everything done that they want to and there's got to be a better way of doing things. And they don't always use those words, but, you know, the sentiment is that they're, you know, under-resourced and, you know, trying to get things done. There's a, there's a greater demand for services and there's less money to do it. And I think that that's, you know, it's a sign that, that it can't wait. <laughs> um, so I think having those things in place does help. So uh, when I talk about review and audit, I'm not talking about, you know, just looking and saying, okay, well, how can we do smart cities better and going through a clipboard, but actually taking that step back and looking at the organization and saying, look, if this is something we're serious about, and if we're going to change the way that we deliver services and we're going to change the way that we operate, then how, you know, how are we going to get there? Who do we need to come on the journey? And I absolutely agree. You know, the, the public from a different side of things in the, in the terms that they'll help you set priorities for the actual deliverables and what their concerns are and whatever else. But internally, you need people to come along for the ride and change is not easy. And I think it's probably a bigger challenge than the technology and the actual implementation of, uh, you know, inverted commas in a smart city. But it's the important bit because the policy, the procedures, the framework behind it all and people being on board to make it happen, um, you know, that's the bit that actually moves the needle. Mm. I um quote I, I like is um, from Josh Field Milburn from the Minimalist is people don't necessarily not like change, but they don't like being changed. So I think that's where that 
education piece is really important and, and, and bringing people along the journey. Like if, if someone, um, you know, if someone says to you tomorrow, Oh, Danny, you're doing things like this now. This is more effective and efficient. You're going to go, hang on. What? Why? How? When? What? Who? Um, no, I don't like that. But if someone comes and says, Oh, hey, Dan, we're thinking about making this more efficient. Um, what do you think about this, about this, about this? Oh, yep. That's a great idea. You know, if it's an exchange rather than a, you know, I'm telling you, this is how we're going to do it. I think that will work uh, easier said than done. But I think that's really important and, and similar with the community as well, which all comes back to that education piece. And the other important thing is when you ask people what they think and what they want, you actually want informed answers, you know, informed opinions. Um, because if you don't, then it's, it's, it's not going to work really well. So, it actually, if you take the time to do that education piece, you're going to get more informed decisions and therefore you'll get a better result in the end. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that more. And I think we act surprised though in our working lives when people don't like to be changed and that change is thrust upon them. But if you look at any other relationship, be it, you know, your kids, your husband, your wife, your partner, your friends, they don't like it when you come and tell them they're doing something either. Um, you know, it's, yeah. it's, 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 we're all humans and it's that human aspect, I think, that, uh, is the bit that is difficult. And I think the difficult thing about it is that technology can only solve so much of that. You know, there's tools to collaborate and there's tools to gather ideas and do surveys or whatever else, but you, you can't simulate that bit. You know, people need to be engaged and informed and their things and their ideas need to be considered. Um, so it, I don't want to go off of too much of a tangent, but it, it it always surprises me that that's so challenging when we do it day to day in our lives anyway, um, but we struggle when it's in a in a corporate or a um, organisational setting. So, just just food for thought. But um, I, I'm really keen to hear other people's opinion on that too, because um, you know, it obviously is yeah, difficult, totally. but it's not surprising if we look at it in the same context we do some of our lives. So yeah, cool. Well, it's been awesome to chat with you. I'm keen to hear. I know we're we're gone a bit over, but I'm keen to hear if there are any other emerging trends uh, that you've come across since we last spoke that um, have really, uh, you know, changed the way you've thought about things or, or are really interesting. I would say there's probably been a thousand things since we last spoke a couple of months ago that have changed, but there's a few that stick with me, and that they're sort of uh, the things that I'm hearing more and more. So the public-private um, partnerships I'm hearing a lot of. And I'm also hearing it from both sides. So um, councils don't really know how to go about it without getting in trouble. Organisations don't really know what's allowed and not allowed with councils in terms of public-private partnership. And I say councils, but I obviously mean a bit more broadly um, because obviously the federal and state governments are also involved and there's, there's other stakeholders in the smart city piece. But public-private partnerships, what does that mean for us? How do we operate? How does that fit in with our governance structures? How does it fit in with our procurement policies? I, I can see that being another really challenging area, but it's something that, that's come up a lot since we last spoke. And probably the other thing is, I think regions and councils, now we're getting to that critical mass of people talking about smart cities that I can really feel a momentum building. And I, I'm kind of using the the number of market requests and tenders and quotes and inquiries and things as a, as the needle uh, measure here, but it does seem to have almost doubled in the last few months. And I'm not sure if it's to do with the the federal government's Smart Cities and Suburbs program being at, you know, round two's just closed, getting into round three soon, um, whether people just understand that, you know, this is something we can't ignore or whether there's something greater 
driving that, but I've really noticed in the last sort of six months things accelerating, which is kind of, you know, we, we kind of predicted this a few weeks, uh, a few, few years ago. Uh, and I still think we're probably two years away from the, you know, the, the critical critical mass. So I think we're at the start of the, you know, the early adopters, uh, sorry, early adopters and at the start of the, um, the bell curve heading upwards. But, um, I, I definitely feel that, um, the more people talk and see and learn, the more they get engaged and want to do or prompts more questions in their mind. So it's kind of a summary of everything we just talked about on the call. But there definitely is people getting excited about smart cities and, um, you know, with good vision and leadership and all the right frameworks in place, then the, you know, the chances of success are much higher. But you also mentioned something that, that's really just stuck with me and I, and I totally agree is people also need to be given permission to fail within councils, you know, often and not always there's a, there's a real risk averse culture. And I feel that that's slowly getting to a point where perhaps some small experiments that may fail are becoming more accepted. And I think that hopefully, you know, that continues because you're never going to get everything right. And if you have to be perfect before you do anything, then nothing's going to ever happen. So yeah, it's just, just an observation. And, and I'm not talking directly about the technology, but there's, there's two things I think with the, with the public private partnership and with, you know, moving things forward, that risk culture. I'm not saying that we go be cowboys and do really silly things, but I think there does need to be an area of, you know, when you're doing innovative things, it's not always going to work. But I, I know some organizations will really struggle with that. No, I, I I agree, and I've been hearing more about those as well. And particularly, I feel the uh, that momentum happening as well. Um, just the more I'm having more and more conversations, um, people understand what it is, and it's it, it's it's getting a bit easier to identify the gaps now because it's not just like everything is a gap. Like people know what it is. Um, I think that initial term is widespread or you know um ubiquitous but like the smart city term or or whatever that means um but now it's kind of going okay what is what does it really mean like what is it cutting through that hype and and diving deep so that's i'm really excited about that because that's where i really want to sink my teeth in and um really help um some of the local councils kind of move forward in it in 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 a way that's like you know fun friendly and useful to them not just um coming in with oh here's a here's a solution let's let's put an autonomous vehicle um you know in your city center or whatever but actually going okay what are your gaps and and like you said very simple things um that exist now it's not super advanced technology which i think is what might scare people like oh well i don't understand what blockchain is so i can't do smart city and um where it's just like oh no you know sensors have been around for you know however many years um but now they're getting to a point where they're they're cheap enough and they're efficient enough and you know they can um they're powered in a way that you know is sustainable uh and yeah then we can kind of use that and put it into a system um, that's also efficient. So then we can use it across the different disciplines within councils and governments and just business in general. So yeah, I'm really excited. Yeah, me too. And uh, you, yeah, you just mentioned something. And I, I just want to point this out for people who might be listening is I'm yet to meet a council who aren't doing census and data logging of some sort, whether that's just the strips across the road to count cars or traffic lights or whatever. There's, yeah, there's not one council yet I've met that do no IoT and, and sort of smarts within their city. It's just that, you know, now, now there's different technologies that are much more prevalent. So it's, it's always funny, but, um, totally agree with you that, um, 
you know, it, it, it's definitely gaining the momentum. And um, I think it's exciting to see because um, there are some problems we have in our cities and towns that, that don't need to be there. So um, I'm really, really looking forward to what that's going to bring. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, you don't have to be doing robotics and uh, machine vision and blockchain. You know, you can start with some, some sensors and, and basic things to solve, you know, specific problems that help you address community and, and, and council needs. So, yeah, I, I always enjoy these calls, uh, Zoe, and I know we, we feed each other's tangents, but hopefully uh, it's given given people some insight around the, the governance procurement. It's quite a complex beast, as you can imagine. But, um, yeah, definitely. I, I, d- I don't think it's nearly as complicated as people think. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think we've gotten into it enough. Anyway, if people <laughs> um, have <laughs> – it's going to go on another tangent. If people have any questions, queries, or want to join our conversation, I'm totally keen for that as well. So hit us up. Excellent. Thanks, Zoe. And um, if you'll allow me a quick uh, a quick thing to hit the end here, there's um, a couple of events um, I'm getting involved in, and this is um, it's it's kind of related to the governance piece, but um, I'm speaking at the IoT Impact event in Sydney uh, the 10th and 11th of October, I believe it is. No, September. Sorry, September. It's in Sydney. Uh, it's an IoT event uh, for industry. Uh, it's run by the uh, I think it's the Internet of Things Alliance Australia that's running it. But the reason I mention this is the panel I'm speaking on is all about choosing the right smart city platform and how do you know that you're choosing the right thing. And there's a lot of work in the industry going into helping to councils and cities to select the, the, the platform or the, you know, the hub, the brain of the smart city. Um, and so I just thought I'd mention that because if it's of interest, it's definitely one of the most challenging decisions that cities will have to make. And uh, hopefully they get some wisdom uh, out of that panel. Um, there's certainly some great co-panel members uh, with me and uh, the whole event is is around learnings and sharing so uh, just if people are interested I I just thought I'd share that because there is a lot of work going on and the Internet of Things Alliance IOTAA are um, about to publish a guide in the the next few months about that platform uh, standards and governance just to give people a, a guidebook to help them with the, at least the complex technology decisions. Yeah, cool. No, definitely. And I'll put the links um, in the show notes so people can click away and, and uh, yeah, head on down Sydney if they're, or if they're already down there. Um, I think there's a few um, good conferences coming up in the next couple of months uh, as well. So There are so many. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It is hard to uh, – I feel overwhelmed um, with <laughs> – the amount of, and it's very difficult to know what you're going to get. Although I always seem to get something out of it, no matter what the context is, because I just love meeting people and having chats. So yeah, I'm yet to I'm yet to go to one that's been a waste of time. I mean, yeah, as you said, if, if the the content and the delivery and everything isn't great, you meet the people that you need to meet. Um, I, I tend to stick to the IOTAA, the ASCA, and the Smart Cities events um, because they're sort of industry driven, and you know they're not vendors. It's it's about what's really happening and, and the people that they seem to attract are, you know, the people that get real value from. And I'm sure there's other conferences, but, um, I mean, you could do a podcast on its own on smart city conferences in Australia at the moment. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I was thinking. Yeah, well, Smart Cities Week is coming up in October, uh, end of October, so that'll be um, exciting as well. Yeah, so many. Anyway, I better let you go. No worries. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no worries. Talk again soon. Thank you and thanks for listening. It's the Smart City Podcast. Whoa. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart City Podcast. 
Show notes for this episode and all other episodes can be found at thesmartcitypodcast.com. If you have any questions or comments for me or any of my guests, connect with me via email zoe at thesmartcitypodcast.com or via the socials. I'm on Twitter and Facebook at smartcitypod. As always, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. Smart City Podcast is what you're looking for.